The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you have determined that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus. And you have given to Jesus the name that is above every other name, that at that name every knee should bow and every tongue confess, namely that Jesus is Lord. You, Lord, are our Savior, our God, and you have pointed out to us clearly you have come in flesh, Jesus. We give you praise for that. And we also acknowledge that day by day and moment by moment, it is hard for us to remember and hard for us to see it, hard for us to believe it. Because the path sometimes through life is marked with sorrow and trouble. And we want to declare, blessed be your name, but struggle with that. Struggle with even seeing you. Struggle with believing that your name is high and exalted the way of hope and salvation. Lord, that's our reality. We wrestle between those two positions. And I pray this morning, Father, that you would commission the Spirit to come into our midst and lift up the Son, to lift up His name in front of our eyes and within our hearts that we might become worshipers of Him more resolutely, more consistently, that worship might fill our hearts with greater joy and bring Him greater honor. Would you do that this morning, Lord, through your Word, by the power of your Spirit here in this room at this time? I cannot make that happen. We cannot make that happen. You can, so that's why we ask you, send forth your light and your truth that it might open our eyes and lead us to you our exceeding joy. And give us grace in the meantime to keep fighting, to keep striving after you. Lord, that's my hope that you would do that this morning. That's my prayer. And I pray that in Christ's name, for his glory, for the good of his people, his church. Amen. So I left our parking lot out here to drive home this last week. An unusually long line of cars at the bottom of the hill caused me to change direction and head up the hill to Wasatch Boulevard to take it home. And it was snowing at the time and a little slick, but it was safe. And as I started to head north on Wasatch, I looked out the valley and noticed a remarkable view. There was a very low cloud ceiling, and as the sun was setting, Sun was reflecting off the clouds and off the falling stone. It was creating a very unusual glow to the whole valley. It was just beautiful. Caught my attention. Not for too long, though. I was driving. And so I looked out and looked back at the road and glanced back out. A marvelous view back to the road. Glanced out. Just amazed. Back at the road. Glance, road. And then suddenly, the view totally changed. I glanced out, and then I couldn't see anything. Nothing just beyond that lane right over there. So I real quick looked back at the road. And sure enough, 
My visibility had dropped all the way down to about 10 feet. I couldn't see much further than in front of my car as I had literally driven into a cloud. And so I forget about everything out there and am drastically reducing speed, hoping I don't run into somebody else who's paused right there in the, in the sudden blindness. The view's gone, and I'm tense. And then just as suddenly, it's back. As I drove out of the cloud. There's the valley. There's the road. Everything's fine. For just a few seconds there, though, I had this cloud-induced blindness that, that caused me to totally forget about everything out there, focusing in right here. My world descends to right here, and my heart tenses up. Has that sort of thing ever happened to you? A couple of seconds, minutes, months, cloud-induced blindness that causes you to forget all the splendor out there and reduce your world to right here and cause your heart to tense up. Has that ever happened to you? That sort of experience is one of the reasons that God has given us the Psalms. I love the Psalms. One of my favorite parts of the Bible. And one of the reasons he has given us the Psalms is to help his people deal with the descending cloud that blinds us. That draws us into fear. That, that causes us to lose all perspective. And to just be looking at the here and now and sorrowing because of it. One of the reasons he's given us the Psalms is to help us deal with the resulting confusion and depression that comes when that happens. He's given us the Psalms in part to give us just enough of him. To give us just enough to anchor onto and hold onto so, so that we're not totally thrown by the waves of life and that we can keep moving through the clouds knowing he's there until they lift and we can see him again. It's one of the reasons he's given us the Psalms. The Psalms are basically poems. Songs. They're the ancient hymnal of Israel, if you will. 150 of them, written by a whole bunch of different authors. Gathered together, put together in, in clumps. They're subdivided into five different books. And they became a source of personal or corporate worship for the people of God. They'd be sung or recited or memorized to help the people worship various times in their lives. Sometime back we looked at some selected psalms from the first book of the Psalter, the first chunk, which is Numbers 1 to 41. And now we're going to spend the next couple of months or so looking at the second book, some selected psalms from those numbered 42 to 72. Not all 30, just a, a few here and there. And like the first book, each of these different books in the Psalms, they have kind of a theme. And like the first book, the second book does as well. And the theme of the second book of the Psalms is the affliction of the people of God. Not that every single one of them is about that subject, but that's the general vein that these Psalms are progressing along. And, and today's passage is in that line. Today we're going to look at Psalms 42 and 43. In your Bible, they're, they're divided. There's, there are two different Psalms, 42 and 43. But there's evidence in older manuscripts that at one time they used to be just a single Psalm. And if we actually, as we actually look at the text, you'll notice there's a gigantic clue that supports that conclusion. 
And so as I was considering what do I preach and, and when and thinking do I do 42 and 43 separately, whatnot, I decided to preach them together because they fit and because it would give me a chance to preach something else as well in its place. So we're going to look at 42 and 43 today. I'm going to read them as a unit and treat them as a unit. And then we're going to pass back through and note a few details before making some overarching con- conclusions and observations. So let me read Psalm 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The most obvious feature of this passage is the threefold repetition of that one particular verse, 42, verse 5. 42 verse 11 and 43 verse 5 are all exactly identical. And as such, they form a a chorus that separates this into a three-stanza poem. The first stanza, verses 1 to 4, lays out the problem that the psalmist has, as essentially he's talking to us and telling us about his problem. And the way he tells us explains some things about him. Verse 2, he talks about longing to appear before God, And in verse 4, how he recalls leading the throng of people into the house of God, into the temple in Jerusalem to worship. 
he tells us those things, we realize that he's some sort of priest. He's accustomed to being at the very center geographically, at the very center of the worship of God, actually being a leader in that. He leads the procession in. That's what he's been about. That's what his life is. He's some sort of a, of a priestly worship leader. But the way he tells us this reveals his dilemma because that's not what his life is like now. He's remembering leading them in. He's remembering appearing before God, but he's not at the moment. In fact, verse 6 tells us that, geographically speaking, he's separated from the temple in Jerusalem. He's on the other side of the Jordan River in the land of Jordan and Hermon, Mount Mazar. So he's speaking geographically, he's distanced. But remember, this is a poem. And the geographic, the physical, is meant to be reflecting the spiritual. The problem is not just that he's physically separated from Jerusalem, because he could get on a horse and ride there. It's not that far. The problem is that he's distanced from God. He's separated from him. He remembers the nearness. But right now, his soul is thirsting for God, like a deer looking for water, looking for a stream, looking for a stream, wandering through the forest, thirsting and not finding it, but needing it, wanting it, desperate. That's what I'm like, pursuing God, and I cannot find him. The best I can do is remember him. Where is he? I'm looking and longing, and sorrow fills my soul. Tears are my food all day long. What do I have for breakfast? Tears. Lunch? Tears. Dinner? More tears. Afternoon snack? Tears. Bedtime snack? Tears. Sorrow all day long as I remember God but cannot find him. And when I look, all I hear are them taunting me. Where is he? Not here, is he? Them. They say to me, where is your God? Who, who are they? Well, it's not clear. They're further described, and you move on through the psalm. They are the, the enemy in verse 9. They are the adversaries in verse 10 who are taunting him. Same question, where is your God? They are the deceitful and the ungodly, the enemies in 43 verses 1 and 2. But he's never specific. Who are they? There's this vague enemy, adversary, taunter, which is common throughout all the Psalms. In fact, this type of literature exists outside of Israel. Other cultures had these lament-type literatures, and, and they also have enemies in vague, almost fill-in-the-blank sort of spots. It's vague on purpose so that you can read this and plug in your own problem. Leaving it vague is God's design. There's an enemy out there that confronts the people of God. Sometimes it's personified. Sometimes you see hints it's an enemy army or it's a famine or a plague or a betrayer. But the key element with the enemy throughout the Psalms, the key problem with the enemy is not the actual, you might say, the first tier danger. The big problem in, say, a famine is not the shortage of food. The big problem in a plague is not the disease. The big problem in the military enemy is not the conquest. The big problem is that their existence causes me to wonder, where is God? Their very presence says to me, not here, is he? Ha! Doesn't exist, does he? Because if he did, he'd stop this. But he hasn't, so he's not here. You're hoping in something empty and false. 
That's the real threat of the enemy. Something falls on life. Some cloud sets in. And the cloud itself is not the problem. The problem is that it blocks me or threatens to block me from seeing him. And I begin to wonder and doubt and wander. Where is your God, they say to me. That shows up in the first stanza, and the second stanza elaborates on that struggle. As we find the psalmist now talking to us and also talking to God. And look how he's going back and forth. He's wrestling with things. The end, the end of the first refrain, you know, he comes out of that. Why so downcast? And then verse 6, my, I'm downcast. My soul is downcast. And in fact, it's so downcast that I'm, I'm here listening to the Jordan River kind of trickling along. And it's like it's a waterfall, but then the waterfall becomes the deep of the ocean thundering with its waves crashing down on me. It's poetry. The scientists out there, that means it's figurative language. It's designed to capture your heart. It's poetry. The water to the waterfall to the deep thundering down on me, burying me, crushing me. But then he he flips back. No, actually, it's God who showers on me his steadfast love and who sings over me a lullaby at night. My rock. So why have you forgotten me? You see him flipping back and forth here as he's wrestling with what he knows and what he sees, what he thinks. He's wrestling with this, talking to God, questioning him. It's the second stanza. And then the third stanza, he switches to asking God to intervene. Prayer. God, step in and help, please. So three basic stanzas of of this poem. Psalmist talking to us. Psalmist talking to God. And importantly, And this is extremely important. We're going to come back to this for a lot of time here. Importantly, notably, in each of the three identical refrains, the psalmist is talking to himself. Throughout the poem, talking to me, talking to you, talking to God, and in the refrain, three times, talking to himself. Telling himself what to believe, what to think, what to hope in, because of what he's telling himself is true. That's critical. That's critical. I'm going to come back to that. That's the passage for this morning, a three-part psalm that introduces us to the theme of this particular book of the psalms, affliction, affliction of the people of God. Introduces us to the enemies that play a large part in that affliction, and it's going to show us something about how to fight against it. So we're going to look at that in a little more detail as I make three observations from this passage. The first observation is related to the problem that causes it, that that leads to him writing this. So here's the first observation. Distance from God leads to sorrow and depression in life. Distance from God leads to the emotional experience of sorrow and depression despair, mourning, those are the kinds of words that he uses, you could use others, leads to the emotional experience of sorrow and depression in life. Comes from a distance from God. And for some of us here, that is entirely obvious because that's your experience. 
You know what this guy's talking about. You're living it right now. Or you have been living it very recently. You've experienced it. You're traveling along just fine, driving along, looking at the gorgeous valley, and then suddenly something happens. The clouds descend, and you can't see anything. He's gone, apparently, out there somewhere. But I, I can't see him, and I can't find him. I pick up the phone. It's dead. I'm praying. It's going nowhere. I read the Bible. It's, I, I fall asleep. Nothing. He's just gone from me. And then what results is that I try to fight through life on my own and it doesn't work and the sorrow and the emptiness piles on on you. You know what that's like because it's your life right now. But for others of us, it, the connection's probably never occurred to you. Distance from God leads to the sorrow and the depression that you're experiencing in your life. The sorrow, the despair, the emptiness, the loneliness, it does not come from a lack of better relationships or just having a bad day. Things are kind of out of sorts. It's because there's a distance between you and God. Now, I need to say something right here and be very clear about this, so everybody pay attention. There are other contributing factors for sorrow and depression in life. Everybody hear that? There are clear medical and biological factors. If you don't get enough sleep, your mood will be depressed. I remember listening to one wise Christian talking to another younger Christian, and this guy was saying, he was describing this sort of experience, and he said, how much sleep are you getting every night as a college student? Oh, at least four hours. And he said, go to bed and talk to me tomorrow. That's true. And if you're taking certain medications, they can alter your mood, as can the malfunctioning of certain glands and organs in the body. And there are things in life that should make us sorrow. Jesus wept when he looked at the death, death of Lazarus. The Bible commands us to mourn over our sin. So there are other contributing factors. I hope everybody heard that. But I also need to be really, really clear. Hear this. This psalm, the word of God, is explicitly making the connection between our emotions, sorrow and mourning and weeping, or the flip side of that, joy and gladness, and our connection to or distance from God. That is explicit here. That's what the whole thing is about. And so even all those other contributing factors, sleep and medical things and whatnot, all of that stuff that may cause sorrow will be enhanced or, or damaged by your relationship or lack thereof to God. So it's not an either-or world. We're not in an either-or world. We're in a both-and world. So don't, don't say, well, I'm, I'm taking a medicine. That's causing me to have a depressed mood, so I, I can now stop listening. Or, it doesn't matter if I sleep and take medication, have things going on in my body. It's all spiritual. No. Both together. And this morning, I, I want to be clear that when I'm talking about depression and sorrow... I'm in Psalm 42 and 43. I'm not trying to prescribe about your medical condition, okay? Is that clear? 
But everybody needs to pay attention to this because it is in the Bible and it's talking about an explicit connection between your emotions and your relationship to God. And it's clear here. Verse, verse 2, he's thirsting for God, distance from him, and he can't find him, so tears are his food. That's a clear connection. Distance from God, so tears are my food. That's throughout. Verse 9, he describes himself as going about mourning, as if he's wounded in his body. Because of the taunting, where is your God? He's depressed because he's lost an intimate connection with God, which should be expected because, verse 4 of Psalm 43, who's God? God is our exceeding joy. If you have this thing that is your exceeding joy and you leave it over here and walk over here for some reason or another, that's where joy is. What's over here? Not joy. Not exceeding joy. Maybe temporary joy. Maybe secondary joy. Tertiary joy. But not exceeding joy. You've left that. We should expect that when that happens, sorrow will follow. Depression will follow. God is our exceeding joy in his presence, he says in verse 42. When he goes in there with the throng, he leads them in procession to the house of God. What happens? Glad shouts and songs of praise. Sounds a lot like Psalm 16. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasure forevermore. And if I'm not in your presence and not at your right hand, what should I expect? But sorrow and loss. I'm missing something. God is life. He is the one for whom we were made. He's the one who fashioned our hearts in a very particular way so that he would plug into them. Now we can cram other stuff in there for a little while. To paraphrase the old theologian, he said there's a God-shaped vacuum in each of our hearts, but we're constantly trying to ram other things in there and we can hold it in there. Maybe if we use some tape, it'll stay for a little while longer. But eventually it falls out and the hole reappears. We have a particular socket in our house, a light socket in our house, that I, I think the, the prongs have kind of worn out because we stick things in there and they fall out. We stick things in there and we fall out. So we've got to stick it in there and then hold it in there via some device. And then it works. But obviously there's a problem there. That's what's happening in all of our lives as we're trying to fit other stuff into the place in us that God made for himself, the one who is, he himself is, our exceeding joy. That's true for those of us who are Christians and those of us who aren't yet. If you haven't yet trusted Christ, please realize this. When you listen to your heart, and maybe that only happens at night when you're by yourself and your friends have gone home and you've turned the TV off and the radio off and the computer off. And you listen to your heart. The thing that rises up that leads you to want another beer, another ice cream, um, another internet chat, another something else. The thing that rises up in you, the emptiness that's because there's a hole there that God's not filling. He is the one who will be your exceeding joy. And none of those other methods of escape actually work. 
They work for a moment until the buzz wears off, and then you need another one. He is your exceeding joy. He will fill that for you if you'll come to him. Same thing for Christians, though. We've come to him, but we, for some reason or other, sometimes for our own sin, sometimes because God mysteriously sends a cloud. But we get distance from him as well. He's the one that we need to fill our hearts. He's the one that we're made for. He is our exceeding joy. And without him, we will know sorrow. What we're meant to do is fight after him, to look for him, to reach for him, to press through the cloud, if you will, or to switch analogies, to develop some object permanence. You know, object permanence. If you ever took Psych 101 or perhaps have played with a little baby, you know what this is, even if you don't know the term. Very little babies don't realize that when you take an object and move it behind another object, that it's still there. Say a ball behind a footstool when you're playing with them on the floor. Very little babies think that the ball goes behind the footstool and poof, it's gone. Which is why they cry. They get upset. They worry. And then they totally forget about it as if it doesn't exist and move on to something else. For a little while, until they get a little bit older, and then they begin to hunt. You can almost see the little wheels turning as they flop over and begin to crawl a little bit to look behind the footstool. You can still trick them because you're smarter and quicker than they are, but they're beginning to develop this idea of object permanence. Something that was here at one time is still somewhere around here. I wonder if it's behind the footstool. We need to develop that with God. When the cloud descends, we realize the valley's still out there. It didn't go anywhere. When the cloud descends, God's still out there in all of his splendor, just like he was a minute ago. I need not weep as if he has abandoned me and then proceed as if he doesn't exist. I must not weep as if he has abandoned me and then proceed as if he doesn't exist. I must rather reach for him and fight through it. And as I say that, I'm beginning to turn the corner to what this psalm encourages us to do to fight when the cloud descends, to fight when we experience the depression and the sorrow from the distance of God. We must not just say, God's gone somewhere, I guess I better proceed without him. But we must fight for him. Here's the second observation. When sorrow arises within us because we're distanced from God, which is going to happen, it's going to happen in life, what do we do? We fight sorrow and depression by preaching gospel hope to yourself. You fight sorrow and depression by preaching gospel hope to your own soul, to yourself. That's the main course of help in this psalm. I see that in the threefold identical refrain. He keeps coming back to that. He keeps repeating that. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Self, this is a command to you. Hope in God right now. The one who is your salvation and your God. 
The psalmist is taking himself by his lapels, or depending on how you usually listen to yourself, by, by the hand a little more gently, but I need the lapels. He's taking himself and saying, hey, self, do this. Hope in him. This is the situation. We don't see him, do we? No, of course not, self. We don't see him. He's gone distance from us in some way, hidden from view. But this emotional response need not control you. Now, remember my, my qualifying remark about there are some things that lead to sorrow in life, medical, biological, circumstance-oriented. Those things will arise, but they need not control you. When he asks the question, why are you cast down, O my soul? It is a rhetorical question. It's like when you look at a child who is trying to untie his shoe and has somehow pulled it into a knot and is now wrestling with it and wrestling and is starting to, starting to cry. And you say, son, why are you crying? We can fix that. I can get that out. You're not actually, you know why he's crying. What you're saying is, don't cry. It's okay. There's hope. He's saying to his soul, don't cry. There's hope. In fact, Hope in God. You've lost sight of him. I realize that he's distance, but he has not left you. That's not the case. You're going to see him again and praise him. Remember, he's using the, the physical language of, I shall again praise him. What he means is I'm going to come back into his presence in the temple and offer up worship. I'm distanced from him. Someday, I will be restored to him. I will again praise him. The distance will close, and in the meantime, hope in him. My salvation and my God. That's the psalmist in the Old Testament preaching that to himself. He calls God my salvation and my God. Because he understands. He understands enough of the law to realize what's going on in the temple. I'm a priest. I get this. What's going on in the temple I'm offering the sacrifices and the worship that cleanse me for the day or for the event. And I do that again, but I'm not cleansing me. I'm not saving me, nor is this animal saving me. God is saving me in response to my faithful following of him. He is my Savior. And he preaches that to himself. Christian, you have a lot better message to preach to yourself. Really, it's the same message, but you have a lot better grounds to preach it to you. He is your salvation and your God. Look at the cross. How has he become your salvation? Not in the blood of bulls and goats, not in a lamb again and again and again and again, and again but in the cross. He is your salvation and your God. He has stepped into this world to deliver you. It has happened. So you hold that up in front of yourself and say, I am in Christ. He is my salvation and my God in an intimate, personal sense. He is your God. He is the lover of your soul. He is the one who pours on you his steadfast love and sings his lullaby over you in the evening. That is true if you are in Christ, and you know that, just like the psalmist does, but notice the key is not knowing it, the key is in preaching it to yourself and believing it. 
preaching it to yourself and believing it every day, every moment, in the midst of the clouds. When the question arises, where is your God? You say back to yourself, my God never leaves me nor forsakes me. Does he care for you? He has shown me his love at the cross. What can separate me from the love of Christ? Not famine, not nakedness, not sword. In other words, none of the enemies. Nothing can. I am my beloved's and he is mine and his banner over me is love. Take the song of Solomon there. You preach that to yourself with all of your might and you tell yourself to believe it because it is true and you call everything else a lie because it is. There is a fight here. You tell yourself, I cannot see him right now. There is a distance here. And sorrow accompanying me. The darkness may last for a while though, but joy comes in the morning. And the morning always comes. Tell yourself that. Because of his promises, which are true, and you look at the cross to know that, he will not save you and then abandon you. He has proven his love for you at the cross. You grab yourself by the lapels and you tell yourself that and you repent of everything else that creeps in there and you call it a lie and you run as fast as you can to another Christian or brother who will preach the same thing to you and encourage you. Preach to yourself first though because what happens is our hearts are so twisted that when somebody else preaches it to us first, often we reject them. Preach it to yourself first. You're your first line of defense. And then say, please preach this to me, I need it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous medical doctor turned pastor who preached in London in the decades after World War II. He died in the early 1980s. But in describing the Christian in this state of being downcast and clouded and despairing, he said that the problem with most of us is that we spend far too much time listening to ourselves when we should be talking to ourselves. What he means is we live life passively as receivers. Stuff happens and we take it in and mourn. We would write this whole psalm and leave out the refrain. Why so downcast, O my soul? I am downcast. That's that's a bad thing that's happened to me. And I know God's who he says he is, but I'm just downcast. Man, it's a bummer to be downcast. I can't wait for the clouds to lift. That's passively receiving the experience of life. What Lloyd-Jones is suggesting to us and what the psalm is telling us, the word of God, is become much more aggressive with yourself. Do not listen, talk. Tell yourself the truth. Tell yourself to believe it. Take every thought captive and make it subject to Christ. That's what that means. You don't let thoughts just happen and run around and shape you. You say, whoop, is that true or not? Let me see. No, it's not. I subject you to Christ. Is that true? Yes, it is. I believe it. And I'm going bo- to act as if it's true. 
Don't go through life passively receiving. Talk to yourself. I must say, this is extremely difficult for me. I am a glass half-empty person. I'm probably a glass three-quarters empty person. I'm a pessimist. And I'm a pastor. Which you might think should change that, but actually I find exacerbates it. (laughs) It's my experience at least. Perhaps because I see lots of problems and and perhaps because as I heard, I was in a group that a, a, a more experienced pastor than me was talking to and he said every pastor who's been awake and has been around realizes that every church is just a house of cards. That if God's grace were to withdraw from it, the whole thing would fall down at the slightest breath of wind. There's nothing holding it together other than the thing I can't control. Which can be frightening. And when the thing I can't control has apparently not showed up recently, the clouds are descending, and my pessimism kicks in, it's a bad day. And I struggle with talking to myself rather than listening to myself. Regards to the church, but same in regards to my life. I'm still a pessimist in my own life. I see how things are going today or I encounter a situation and man, it's a bad day. What a bummer. Can't wait for it to change. Rather than saying, hold on a minute, self. Is that true? Who are you, self? Who is Christ? Come on. You know it. Believe it. And call everything else a lie because it is. Say no to it and believe this, obey it, and walk after it. Not that that's going to fix everything. The psalmist is still struggling. He has to come back to this three times. It's a battle. That's the point, though. It's a battle. Fight. Fight sorrow and depression by preaching gospel hope to yourself. So one more approach, one more angle of attack on such depression. My third observation, and I need to be really quick here. I'm going to be... I'm going to abbreviate this, but point this out in 43 verses 3 and 4. He switches to a prayer. Here's the third observation. Fight sorrow and depression by praying for illumining grace. When he switches to a prayer, what's he saying to God? God, would you send forward to me in the place where I am, send it out to me, your light and your truth like a flashlight or a road map to guide me to something, to guide me back to your altar. Again, it's a poem. It's not literal. He knows where the altar is, okay? He doesn't need a map. But he can't find his way there, spiritually speaking. So send out your light to show me. Send out your truth to show me. Interestingly, Jesus called himself both of those things. Leads us back to God. Interesting connections there. But the point that I'm making here now is that he prays and says, God, show me the way back. You put these things together, what it is is the cloud descends 
I can't see you, so I'm going I'm to believe you are there, and I'm going to believe you are there to do me good, and I'm going to keep moving through, and God, would you lift the cloud? Would you cause the cloud to go away? Would you show me the ball? I know it's here somewhere, and I'm searching, and I'm believing. Show it to me. That's his prayer. He can't make it appear. He can't make the cloud go away. He can't make the circumstances change. But he knows that one day he will come back into the presence of God and praise him. Bring that about, please, by your grace at work in my life. So when you see, when you're facing and dealing with the sorrow and depression in your life that comes from being distanced from God, and while you are fighting that by preaching gospel hope to yourself, don't forget to pray. To ask God to bring the morning. M-O-R-N-I-N-G. You pray and you preach. Preach to yourself. Pray to God. We face sorrow and depression in life. We preach hope to ourselves and pray for God to intervene. Let me give you a chance now to pray. Deal with God for a couple of minutes and then we'll move into our communion service. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.